brand new Major General Charles Lee was looking pretty darn indispensable in the early days of the American Revolution. He started where the action was in Boston in 1775, when the Continentals had the British locked up in the city and held the high ground. He didn't share General Washington's disdain for militias and worked hard to impose training and discipline on the troops. Future Yale President Ezra Stiles said, General Lee was assiduous in reforming the army, even down to threatening to beat an officer with his cane because of his troops' unsoldierly conduct. Our favorite revolutionary networker started corresponding with his own pals, British generals John Burgoyne and Henry Clinton, trying to entice them to join the American cause. He got an answer from Gentleman Johnny Burgoyne, of future Battle of Saratoga fame, saying that he hoped Lee would return to the British fold and offering to meet with him under a flag of truce to persuade him back to the British side. So much for networking. The enemy decided to abandon Boston and took off in their ships for Halifax, Nova Scotia, to resupply and await reinforcements for their next move. Whatever it was. With the British command out to sea, as it were, the Continentals had a hard time getting intelligence about upcoming enemy strategy so they had to guess where the British would strike next. There were at least three very plausible options. Canada, which seemed perfectly fine with British overlordship, was a hotbed of friendly English loyalists and would provide both a resupply point and a strategic base from which to launch attacks against New York and New England. New York City, surrounded by water, was a hotbed of friendly English loyalists that would provide both a resupply point and a strategic base from which to split the colonies in half. The South, particularly Virginia and North Carolina, was a hotbed of friendly English loyalists that would provide both a resupply point by way of Chesapeake Bay and a strategic base from which to launch attacks against the Middle Colonies and the American capital of Philadelphia. The British had a few things on their side, like command of the seas and loyal colonists, and needed a few things, like ports they could use to resupply their troops and strongholds from which to attack. The Americans believed that their enemy's next move would be Canada, New York, or the Southern Colonies. It is worth noting that Charles Lee was appointed to command each of these fronts. Not George Washington, not Horatio Gates, not Nathaniel Green, not any of the other generals in the Revolutionary Army at this time. They picked Charles for all three. General Lee is the first officer in military knowledge and experience we have in the whole army, Washington wrote in 1776. Charles was sent to New York first. He believed that the city should either be strongly garrisoned and fortified or destroyed. His biggest problems, unsurprisingly, were those pesky English loyalists finding a way to prevent British ships from using the ports and fortifying the city against attack. Charles lost it on the Congress, writing to Robert Morris, for heaven's sake, why have you not fortified and garrisoned that city? For if the enemy once take post there, we cannot paint in our imagination the magnitude of the calamities which must flow to the continent from our amazing negligence. He wanted the New York loyalists suppressed, meaning imprisoned, or expelled. Not to crush these serpents before their rattles are grown, he said, would be ruinous. Washington waffled on the extent of his authority to go after civilians, even if they were working for the enemy, but both Charles Lee and John Adams reminded him that the Congress had granted him full authority in military matters, which this most assuredly was. John Adams, that lovable yet irascible grump, could always light a fire beneath the posteriors of the unsure or the unwilling. He wrote Washington, You are vested with full power and authority to act as you shall think for the good and welfare of the service. That New York is within your command as much as Massachusetts, 
cannot bear a question. Washington told Lee to do whatever he needed to do to handle New York. Thank you, John Adams, just for being you. A continental expedition to Canada, featuring train wrecks Benedict Arnold and Aaron Burr, had failed, leaving the British free to focus on the remaining two strategic goals of their plan, New York and the Southern Colonies. The Canadian defeat sure made it look like New York was next, which made holding it supremely important. Although beset by gout, Charles and his forces headed for New York in the winter of 1776. The New York Committee of Safety warned that his arrival would be considered an invasion and would provoke a response from the British ships in the harbor, which might, you know, affect the lives and property of the loyalists on the New York Committee of Safety. They asked him to clarify his mission and whined that they had not been informed of his approach by the Continental Congress. They ordered him to stay in Connecticut while they tried to calm everyone down and probably make sure the British military was fully informed of his movements. They told him that his army couldn't come to New York unless it was invited and asked the Congress to send down some mediators to figure the whole thing out. Which sounds a lot like a stalling tactic. Since we're talking about indispensability in this series of episodes, I'd like to point out that if ever there was a time for a contrary, oppositionally defiant crank to be running things, this was it. Charles told the Congress that he intended to march his army directly to New York to execute the purposes for which I am detached. He planned to disarm the Loyalists, hand their weapons over to the Continental Army, and administer a loyalty oath to everyone in the city. Anyone who refused the oath would be sent into some interior part of the continent where they cannot be dangerous, and anyone who took the oath would have to hand over half their property as security for their good behavior. Hearts in Mind Safety Tip number 257. If you can't win them over, take their stuff or send them into exile. Congress, still trying to win Hearts and Minds, sent a three-man commission to mediate the dispute, which was only still a dispute because they were entertaining it. The New York Committee of Safety wanted General Lee to submit to their authority while in the city. Charles reminded everyone that his authority came from the Congress and General Washington, so the New York Committee of Safety could go pound sand. And either promise to be good while putting half their stuff in escrow, or get shipped off to Ohio or Michigan. Oppositionally defiant cranks. They really are adorable, aren't they? Whoever commands the sea must command the town, General Charles Lee noted once he got to New York, which he was most definitely right about. And he surely didn't command the sea. He put his men to work fortifying the key water approaches to the city, as well as barricading the main streets and narrow strips of land connecting Manhattan to the mainland. He put obstacles in the East and Hudson Rivers and put up manned fortifications overlooking a body of water called Hell's Gate. His plan was to make sure British ships would have a hard time making their way to port, and if they landed troops, they would have to fight their way through barricaded streets and merciless artillery fire from the heights to get anywhere. Charles didn't think the Continentals could hold New York, but like the Battle of Bunker Hill, he was going to make the British pay for their victory. It was said in London that a few more British victories like Bunker Hill would ruin the British cause. Charles planned to make New York one of those. One pesky pain in his rear literally, were the British loyalists. The Tories here are damned mad, he said. He knew if he left them alone, the New York loyalists would take up arms to assist in the inevitable British assault. He administered his loyalty oath, which the New York loyalists swallowed as hard as if it were a four-pound shot. He detained anyone who refused the oath, 
effectively neutralizing the Loyalist political and military power. The Committee of Safety, those hardy and resolute bunch of fellows, complained once again that Lee's heavy-handedness would cause British warships to fire on the city. Charles replied that the first house set on fire by your guns shall be the funeral pile of the Loyalists in his custody. Well, that was a conversation stopper. Oppositionally defiant cranks. They really are adorable, aren't they? The committees of New York and Rhode Island, where Charles had also administered a loyalty oath, demanded that his actions be brought to the floor of the Continental Congress in protest. The Congress ended up publicly censuring Charles for his heavy-handedness. This emboldened the Loyalist government in New York, which continued to resupply the British ships nearby. They also pardoned some of their citizens who had refused to take Charles's oath in exchange for a promise of good behavior. Charles argued to Congress that supplying the British military with provisions and, with each grocery run, information about the defensive measures he was taking to secure the city didn't help with that whole defense of New York thing. Charles advised New Yorkers to adopt some vigorous, decisive mode of discovering on whom you may depend and on whom not. In short, the British are coming, so pick a side. Some of your fellow citizens are actively helping the guys who are about to rain hell and damnation down on Manhattan, so what are you going to do about it? This emboldened the supporters of the revolution in the city and stopped the flow of goods and intelligence to the British ships in the harbor. The Continental Congress applauded his actions, realizing that Charles Lee was precisely the kind of crabby troubleshooter they needed for their most troublesome trouble spots in the early days of the war. He was appointed to command a new force to try and retake Canada, that revolutionary pipe dream. Charles accepted the mission, telling Congress that the salvation or perdition of America depends on the management or mismanagement of Canada. Congress sent Thomas Paine, author of the best-selling Common Sense, to New York to inform Charles of his new command. Charles went into full-on prep mode, recruiting troops who spoke both French and English, and asked Washington if he could have either Nathaniel Green or John Sullivan assigned to this command. He was planning to leave for Canada at the end of February 1776 when plans changed. The Congress had decided that there was a strong possibility that the British would invade the South. So the Congress sent General Lee to Virginia, where he would encounter local supporters of the British, political concerns, and the dicey problem of how to fortify the seaside against the guys who had complete mastery of the sea. It was going to be New York all over again. One interesting thing about the Southern Command was that Charles would be answering directly to the Continental Congress. He wouldn't have to run things past George Washington anymore, who was as surprised as anyone to hear of the assignment. Washington wrote to Charles, I was just about to congratulate you on your appointment to the command in Canada when I received the account that your destination was altered. Quite subtly, Washington was pointing out that his people were being moved around and strategies were being implemented without his knowledge. This was part of the problem of being a new commander-in-chief under civilian control. George was going to have to do something about it. Eventually. So Charles and his dogs left New York leaving behind a number of unpaid bills from his tailor, wine merchant, and the tavern where he had been staying. He stopped in Philadelphia to get his orders from his new bosses, the Continental Congress, but in the way of political bodies who were afraid of everything and had a hard time agreeing on stuff, they had only gone as far as appointing their favorite troubleshooter to go handle some trouble that was scaring the bejesus out of them. He finally got his orders and went to Williamsburg, Virginia by way of Baltimore, where he pronounced the city's defenses to be sound and recommended that Maryland's royal governor be detained. 
When he got to Virginia, Charles learned of the British retreat from Boston to Nova Scotia. Everyone believed that an attack on New York was imminent, but the British stayed away for three months. One new wrinkle in Virginia Charles encountered was the slave problem. The Loyalist governor offered freedom to Virginia's slaves, which presented economic as well as physical danger. The planter aristocracy, fearing both the prospect of their crops rotting in the fields as well as an armed slave uprising, gave aid to the British in hopes that their slaves would be left alone. The poor farmers of the region, who had no slaves, saw this as a betrayal and further exacerbated the class tensions that had long existed between rich and poor whites. The revolutionary government didn't help, exempting anyone who owned more than three slaves from militia duty. At the same time, upper-class landlords were still demanding rent from their poor tenants. Oh, and while all this was going on, the British were, by all accounts, planning to invade. The timing was pretty good. Slaves were running away, landed gentry was trying to hold it together, and angry poor whites were joining the militia, who saw both the British and their well-heeled landlords as the enemy. Fun times. Charles had a lot of trouble to shoot. The local militias were poorly armed and trained. There were no engineers to adequately construct fortifications. Charles wrote, There is not a man or officer in the army who knows the difference betwixt a cheval de frise, which is a portable defensive barricade, and a cabbage garden. Running low on muskets, he proposed a force of the tallest men he could find, armed with 13-foot spears, like an ancient Roman phalanx. And, of course, there was another Committee of Safety. Charles had moved troops around and converted the College of William and Mary into a barracks and hospital. He had taken troops from slaveholding areas, which made everyone lose their minds at the prospect of a British armed slave revolt. The Virginia Committee of Safety, professing their desire to cooperate, told Charles that they wished he would have asked for their permission before making all of these moves, which, they said, they would have easily granted. I'm not an oppositionally defiant curmudgeon, as far as I know, but even I want to know what was the point in whining about not being given the chance to give permission if you were going to give it anyway, and easily at that. Charles wrote Washington that the Provincial Congress of New York are angels of decision when compared with your countrymen, the Committee of Safety, assembled at Williamsburg. That's a pretty low bar, Charles. But just like the New Yorkers, the Virginia Committee of Safety looked the other way while Loyalists kept feeding British troops provisions and information and pardoned any person who had participated in aggression toward the revolutionary cause. It really was New York all over again. So Charles knew just what to do. On April 6th, he announced that he would favor the removal of all persons and their livestock from two counties that were full of Loyalist activity. It was surely discovered that the Royalist Governor of Maryland, who Charles had earlier recommended be detained, and wasn't, was in communication with the British Secretary of State and recommending harsh measures be taken against the colonies before it was too late. Even though Maryland was outside his authority, Charles ordered that the Maryland governor and his papers be seized. Yet another committee of safety, this one in Annapolis, overruled him. The Continental Congress also called for the governor's arrest, but the governor, Robert Eden, was eventually paroled by the Maryland Committee of Safety. I'm starting to think that all these committees of safety changed their names. Safety doesn't really seem to be their thing. After six weeks in Virginia, General Lee headed south to North Carolina after receiving reports of an expected British attack in the area. Some of his friends in Congress cautioned him to get the approval of local civilian authorities before he initiated any new policies. 
knowing Charles Lee like I do, I'm not so sure that's going to happen. I guess we'll have to wait and see. If you've enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting the show on our Patreon page. There's lots of fun bonus content over there like how to talk to your pets about history, early access to new episodes, and some incidents where fans of the show take me to task about train wrecks that I haven't talked about, and some that I have. It's also a great way to keep the show going. $3 a month or so goes a long way toward keeping the train wrecks on the tracks, and your support means a lot. Go to patreon.com forward slash histories train wrecks, and thank you so much. If you have your own ideas about how to deal with a cowardly and traitorous committee of safety, or know of some way to fortify a shoreline against maritime attack using cabbages, you can Twitter to add History's Train. You can Instagram, whatever that is, to History's Trainwrecks. If there's a historical train wreck you'd love to see on the tracks, join the History's Trainwrecks Facebook group. And as always, tell every history nerd you know about us. We definitely need to stick together. On our next episode, Charles goes all the way to Charleston, South Carolina, which, as it turns out, was the real British target. As we've seen, Charles goes right to work preparing to defend the city, but encounters the same problems he had everywhere else he was sent to save the day. Conflicts with civilian authority, a shortage of men and material, potential slave uprisings, loyalist shenanigans, and a personality that did not endear him to the locals. Not to mention, a well-armed hostile military force on its way to rain down hell and damnation. Stay tuned for... The Men Who Would Be Washington, Part 5. Hello, great minds! Mr. DGMH here, but wait, what the hell is DGMH? DGMH, or Drinks with Great Minds in History, is a weekly podcast that covers one of history's greatest minds each month. While we enjoy review and rate themed cocktails, liquors, and beers on the scale of greatness. As greats like Alexander Hamilton square off against George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, and more, DGMH is the perfect cocktail of history, sarcasm, and alcohol, with a twist of psych and a bunch of shots along the way. So grab yourself a drink with some great minds in history. Cheers!